0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises
1: From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. Thanks to all of you who listened to the first season, where we brought you ideas with the power to change the way you see the world. We'll be back with the second season on April 21st, and we'll be covering a wide range of topics like how to grow old with dignity, the evolution of friendship, and how technology will transform our world in the next 20 years. But starting this week, we want to check in with some of the guests from the first season to talk with them about how their big ideas fit into these uncertain times. Like the rest of you, we've been utterly disoriented by this COVID-19 global pandemic. I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm currently holed up with my wife and three boys, thumb wrestling for Wi-Fi bandwidth and desk space. We're all healthy. And like you, I'm spending a lot of time talking about what's going on around us, how to help and how to make sense of it all. So I reached out to some of the people we talked to in season one to find out how they've been processing what's happening and how we might apply their ideas to these challenging times the upside of solitude, the importance of joy in the home, how to be indistractable when you're cramped together for an indefinite amount of time with loved ones, sometimes very small, very loud loved ones in my case. These questions we tackled in the first season all have new meaning right now. We're starting today with one of my favorite people, Susan Kane. She's the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. I love that subtitle. Susan is also one of our four Next Big Idea Club curators. She helps us choose the great books we select and thinkers we talk to on this series. I wanted to know how are introverts and extroverts coping? And in this time when our world seems to be getting smaller, what can we learn from going within? Susan Kane, I'm so happy to be talking to you on the phone. It's been it's been far too long. First of all, how are you? How is the family? How are you guys holding up in this crazy time?
0: you know, we're actually doing pretty well right now.
1: I know, Susan, from our many conversations that that you love to work in coffee shops and that you, probably if it were not for this situation, you'd be in a coffee shop right now, quite possibly. I, I think I remember you saying that one of the things that you love about coffee shops is that you can be alone and with people at the same time. And, and that resonated for me in this moment because one of the things that struck me about the last few weeks is I have felt both alone in the sense of being isolated, as we all are, um, and at the same time feeling a little bit more connected, right? Because we've been reaching out more, connecting more. Does that resonate?
0: Yeah, very much. I mean, I call it that state of alone together, an experience like the coffee shop or the experience of just walking down a street in New York City is the ideal state of alone together because you have perfect Mm -hmm. anonymity, but you also have so much humanity around you. And Mm -hmm. we're so porous that I think that you pick up on other people's creative and emotional energy just from the sheer act of walking past them on a city street. And we Mm -hmm. can't do that anymore. But in its place, I I think we're all starting to forge different types of connections now. And for some people, it's quarantinis. And for other people, like you you and I have been exchanging emails. I, I, I think that there's probably always some kind of equilibrium that every human has for how much aloneness they want and how much togetherness we want. And whatever state we're in, we're going to try to reach that equilibrium.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I, I like the distinction that, that solitude is isolation that feels good and loneliness is isolation that feels bad. Yes. Um and that maybe we each have different sort of thresholds like presumably hopefully everybody feels a positive sense of aloneness initially that at some point perhaps converts into a a negative experience of loneliness is that your experience?
0: Oh my gosh, yeah, it's very much my experience. I've found um over these last couple of weeks there's been a kind of black and white way in which people have been talking about the way introverts and extroverts must be. Reacting to this new experience with the idea that of course introverts would love it because it's all this alone time and of course extroverts will hate it because it's not um mm-hmm. and uh, you yeah. know there there is there is of course plenty of truth in that but you know it, introverts also have the threshold where there's too much and and as you say it kind of tips over from solitude into loneliness and vice versa yeah. I'm kind of lucky and I'm in this quarantine situation with mm-hmm. my family. But I think what this would have been like if this had happened when I was younger and single and living in a small apartment in New York city and, sure. uh, you know, having to be like all by yourself in a time like that, I, I think mm-hmm. I would have tipped over into loneliness quite quickly. How are you finding that? If I can ask, like, it, it, is it uh, more solitude or more loneliness for you?
1: Well, my my experience is similar to yours, which is that, um, you know, we have three kids just thundering around the house. <laughs> got, so it really feels, uh, uh, you know, often like I'm living on the inside of a pinball machine and I'm one of the bumpers and <laughs> the balls are bouncing everywhere. So it has, has not, I, I, actually a little more solitude uh, would be delightful. Yeah. This is a great moment for introvert humor. <laughs> which yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure you've been getting a lot of. I think yeah. I, I've had, had a lot of friends who who self-identify as introverts saying saying things like, I've been social distancing for decades just to prepare for this event, you know, for, <laughs> yeah. this, for this occasion, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and so, I mean, do you think there's a distinction between how introverts and extroverts are navigating this? I mean, the stereotype would be that extroverts are having a harder time.
0: Yeah. And I really think, I mean, I, and it probably that's true on average, but I, I really think the more apt question is, were you at the right threshold beforehand? I got an email the other day from a friend of mine who he's a leader of a large organization and, and he's an introvert and he was telling me he's just so happy not to have to go into the office anymore. So for him, that's really ideal. Whereas if you were, let's say an introvert who um, had worked out the right balance before this happened, but now you've yeah. had to adjust that balance. it's It's still probably going to be difficult for you. And the same thing is true for extroverts. It's just more more likely, I think, for extroverts that the balance before was ideal and that this one is not. um and yeah, you know, and I, and I have a lot of empathy for that because, as we said before, you know, we all know what loneliness feels like. almost every human knows that feeling. It's, it's a horrible, yeah. horrible feeling. I, I, there, there's this expression from Proust where he talks about reading being the fruitful miracle of, of communication in the midst of solitude. And so I think that's the kind of experience that probably introverts have been seeking out all their lives because it's a way of feeling connected without having to feel overstimulated. But there's mm-hmm. a way in which extroverts can now sort of look for, look creatively for new ways to have that sensation of the fruitful miracle, even in their solitude.
1: This reminds me of the wonderful post you shared a few days ago titled, On the Miracle of Being Who You Are, mm-hmm. um, in which you said that you have always been, since the age of four, four years old, thinking about mortality and the nature of reality and what on earth we're all doing here? Do you think? Do you think? Does a moment like this make all of us maybe more ruminative about about these subjects?
0: I think it does for sure. Certainly for those of us who are oriented that way, you know, this is like what we were born to think about in a way. Um, sure. Yeah. But I, I wrote that post because I had been talking to my father the night before. And he's 88 now. And I asked him, well, now that you are in this particular life stage, are you finding yourself also thinking more about questions of mortality and what it all means? And he said, no, because he actually is someone who hasn't been oriented that way. And so the way he has been all his life is the way he still is as he gets ready to leave it. And it made me think about how the way I've been all my life, thinking about these kinds of questions since I was four. I'm still thinking about them at 52, and I'm sure I'll be thinking about them, um, you know, when hopefully I'm my father's age. And and I think there is this core essence that we all are born with, and there's something miraculous about that core essence. And it changes in a thousand different ways as we have all our different life experiences, but there's still some core miracle. And whether you think of it as a soul or something else. I don't think it really matters what language we use, but it's still something miraculous. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more.
1: Yes. Susan, we're, we're getting now to, to one of my very favorite topics, which is, can we talk for a moment about the YouTube video of the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra performing Ode to Joy from their homes? Uh you told me that you've watched this video about a thousand times. <laughs> yes. What, what what is it? I and I've just watched it like a half dozen times and and I and I my eyes moistened like clockwork every every single time. What is it about this video you think that's so affecting?
0: Okay. So for people who haven't watched it yet, it's it's almost like the um the coronavirus version of a flash mob. Um, but it's like it's it's the various members of the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra, each of them playing their own part of Ode to Joy, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, from their own homes, and then it's all spliced together to make it into one glorious orchestral sound. And, and you see all these musicians, and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know. All of them have a kind of incredible humanity and humility to them. And these are all people where you know that they have decided to devote their lives to perfecting the ability to just make something beautiful. Like that's what their career is. That's what they're doing. And now they're sharing that with us. And they're doing it at this moment in time when we all feel completely vulnerable and alive to the fact that we're all mortal and there's something about the beauty of the sound that they're making and that they've devoted their lives to being able to create where it's like this reaching for the heavens so you're watching them and it's like all these people who are reaching for the heavens but they're also at this they're also simultaneously expressing the fact that we're all mortal and there's something so incredibly beautiful about it hence a thousand times have i watched it
1: yeah. Well, I, well and the, the, the other detail that I love is that they're all, you know, that it opens up with each of them doing these solos, right? Yeah. So you're introduced to sort of person after person, each wearing a different outfit in a different place in their home, some next to a, a, a painting they clearly particularly love or yes. or a bookshelf filled with CDs. I didn't know so many people still had CDs. Um, and, and, uh, uh-huh. Uh, and there's one guy with a vegan power baseball cap. Oh, my and, God, I love and, the vegan a, guy, yeah. Right? And a vegan poster behind He's him. He's kind of
0: like shaking his fist at the camera, but in this incredibly charming way that's meant to kind of lift your spirits.
1: It's just adorable. So you have all these expressions of individuality, the individuality of each instrument, of each person, and then it just sort of crescendos, and the and the checkerboard oh, of, yeah. of people in the video expands and pulls back, and you have this beautiful crescendo where it, they all become one. It, it just sort of feels like the individuality dissolving into this collective whole of this moment. It's, a, it's beautiful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you're right. The moment when you see them all as a checkerboard together, and then that's when the groundswell of the, the choral part of Ode to Joy comes in. I think that's probably the most tear-inducing moment of it all it's like this acknowledgement of this collective situation that we're all in. And we're all in it in the, you know, in the specific moment in time of dealing with, with this plague, but we're also collectively just in the situation of being human and being mortal and loving beauty anyway. And, yes. and because of that, and yes. there's something about every, those musicians all together on the screen that makes all of that mm. plain.
1: Well, and 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 you told me, I hadn't known this, that that Beethoven wrote Ode to Joy, which is, of course, also one of the most beautiful pieces of music that's ever been written, when he was almost deaf.
0: Oh my gosh, I know. I'm actually, I'm writing about the story of this in my next book. So I've always been struck by the fact that this music is called Ode to Joy, but if you listen to it, it's so obviously bittersweet, it's not just pure joy. It's really more like Joy and sorrow all mixed together in this beautiful thing, and um, and the story apparently is that Beethoven was writing this really as he was losing his hearing, and it was first performed in a symphony hall one night, and he was on stage with the conductor with his back turned to the audience, and then when it was all done and they they were finished playing, the audience erupted into cheers and tears, but he didn't know that he couldn't see because his back was still turned to the audience and. He couldn't hear that it had finished. so finally, um one of the members of the orchestra uh, put her hands on his shoulder and turned him around so he could face the audience and see the tears streaming down their faces. And it's just you know, I, I just feel like you can feel all that when you when you listen to the music.
1: Susan, I'm relishing these breadcrumbs of, uh, we're getting of, of your next book. <laughs> these little, I, I was, I was thinking that bittersweet might be might be a title contender because the, the sort of the yes. double the double edged nature of of the, the most sublime and beautiful things are also a little bit, a little bit painful, uh, somewhat imperfect.
0: That's so funny. That actually is one of my working titles. I can't believe you just said that.
1: Funny. Amazing. Well, do you think when we're all finally released from this quarantine, which which hopefully we will <laughs> <Yeah>. be, <laughs> um, I wonder what it will be like, right. I mean, being, being given back our ability to interact with each other directly. Uh, I'm very curious to know what that's going to be like.
0: I think we're going to have a bunch of really ecstatic moments. And then... After that, we're going to have to fight the impulse to have everything returned to almost too normal without fully learning the lessons of what we're going through. But yeah, I'm imagining some really um, stirring moments like, you know, when this is done and we go to our first um, concert or something like that, where everybody can be together and and, and applauding for the performers, that's going to be amazing. But, but yeah, I, you know, I, I also do think like on a less elevator, just more pragmatic level, you know, what do we do to make sure that we actually prepare for the next pandemic, which is definitely going to happen. Um And sure. I mean, what, like one thing I've noticed in myself, because it's so hard to come by groceries and just the act of getting groceries feels like a risk and so on, I, I've, I've really been making sure to not waste a single morsel or you know, a single piece of aluminum foil or something like that. And I started yep. thinking, gosh, I mean, I should really be acting like this all the time because that's the state we're in with climate change. And just in general, it's not good to waste things. Um, sure. And it, So it's made me realize the extent to which I need to make th- these, these kinds of changes all the time. And I mean, yeah, even, even if you've been paying attention to things like climate change beforehand, I, I think there's a way in which we could use this to make it that much more real.
1: Do you think that there will have been changes that will be somewhat permanent for you from, from this period, or, or not so much?
0: I do think I'm going to have permanent changes, yeah. But I think like all humans, I'm still going to have to fight the impulse to just sort of drift back to normal. I mean, obviously, some of normal you want to just embrace and go run to, but th- for the parts that we should be um, keeping with us, I think we probably all have to fight to preserve them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Given that we arrived at this moment at a time of of enormous polarization, yeah, it it feels to me like just the just in my interactions with people from a six foot distance, you know. Are are very warm. Everybody's asking after everybody's families. I'm hoping that that warmth and sense of of interdependency that we all need each yeah. other that that will yeah. endure, uh, and, and I think we'll all have to sort of work hard to try to keep that alive, perhaps.
0: Yeah, like like the way in New York. Remember there there was the I don't know how long it lasted in New York for six months or a year after nine eleven. You know, I remember sitting yes, in Starbucks yes. and some firefighters came in to get their coffee, and I remember everybody in the Starbucks standing up and clapping for them and it was, oh, yes, it was beautiful right um but you know like that didn't last forever it lasted for some period of time so um, yeah uh, how do we how do we take all of this and make it last I think that's the really interesting challenge that's worth thinking about
1: well Susan thank you so much for your time today I- I'm really looking forward to your next book but in the meantime I'm gonna have to make do with your amusing and touching posts, and the Rotterdam Ode to Joy video.
0: <laughs> now that I know you like that, you're going to be subject to so many music videos coming your way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks again to Susan Kane for joining us today. If you haven't read Quiet, I highly recommend it. If you want to check out the Rotterdam Philharmonic's socially distanced rendition of Ode to Joy, which I also highly recommend, you'll find a link in the show notes. Next week, I'll be speaking with Stephen Johnson. He's written 11 books, including Ghost Map, which feels like a central reading right now. It's about London's 1854 cholera epidemic and the scientific detective work that helped bring it to an end. Stephen's also hosting a brand new podcast series from Wondery about innovation and ideas during this crisis called Fighting Coronavirus. If you've been tempted to join the Next Big Idea Club, there has never been a better time. We're all stuck inside. It's a great time to discuss life-changing ideas with the world's leading thinkers and a growing community of curious people like you. Join me, Susan Kane, and many other authors featured on this podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. We're offering a free digital membership, including access to our e-courses and community for three months when you use promo code FREE3. Go to nextbigideaclub.com and use promo code FREE3. That's F-R-E-E and the number three for three free months. Join us. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast, you'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Kayla Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Cobnot. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.